Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. When I was on a sports field or playing soccer, I found a sense of worth, right? And and what, you know, whatever the worth of my pocket was at the time didn't matter. It was what I had in my heart. And if you go, my God, it's too foggy. I'm not going to move. I'm going to stand here until the fog clears. You know, who knows what opportunities you missed up ahead just because they didn't have the faith and the courage to take your action at that first step. What they're seeing us is, are these four guys who have really no business being in the Winter Olympics, you know, getting there against all odds, you know, dreaming this impossible dream. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Devin Harris. Who is Devin Harris? Devin is an original member of the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team and captain of the 1998 two and 1998 teams. He's also a three-time Olympian, and yes, if you're thinking this in your mind, he is the inspiration for the movie Cool Runnings. I don't wanna give a long preamble about Devin, but I promise you that once we get past the whole Jamaican bobsledding uh, story that we all probably know pretty well, you will learn how genius this man is. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Devin Harris. Devin, welcome to the show. Hey, bro. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Uh it's going really well. I am super excited to have you here, mostly, mostly because I love all things Jamaican. My dad was a scuba diver, and we went to Jamaica 16 times over the course of my life. I learned about breadfruit. I learned about ackee. I learned about jerk chicken. It was it's a magical land. I love Jamaica so much. Uh, you fun. know, you've convinced me that you've been to Jamaica. You mentioned breadfruit. You mentioned ackee, one of my favorite things to eat. You know, I can't say I'm into the scuba diving thing. You know, I like my water frozen. What can I say? But yeah, you've convinced me that you've been to Jamaica. Well, we are we are going to get uh, we're going to get 
off of scuba diving and and in uh in pretty short order we're going to be talking about bobsledding which i just can't believe we're having this conversation because it's fascinating so we're gonna we're gonna dig into all of that but what i'd like to do first is i'd like to take you back to growing up in jamaica in the 70s as beautiful as jamaica is it has its share of poverty its share of unsafe areas and you were raised in one of those areas that area is called waterhouse so you were in a couple of areas but waterhouse is one of them it's not poverty like we know in the states this is where you're having to make uh, the choice to either stay home or go to school barefooted could you perhaps set the stage for what that felt like for you as a kid yeah, so uh, Waterhouse. So you've been doing some research, boy. How about that? So, I don't mess yeah, around. I grew up in, uh, in Olympic Gardens, that uh, the, the most notorious enclave in Olympic Gardens is known as Waterhouse. Um, and the entire place is uh, impoverished and, and violent. And yeah, that's the environment I grew up in, especially back, you know, mid, early to mid 70s, uh, early 80s. Political violence was on the rise, and um, yeah, it, it was uh, jarring to say the least. And, and you're right, you know, there there were times when you know my my, my shoes, you know, just got broken. And uh, but for me, it was the choice of staying home was not really a choice because I loved school, I loved learning, I loved I, I loved the the gratification of doing well, I loved the acknowledgement of doing well uh, in school. But I loved to play. I loved to play. And, and school was the only place I could really play. And that's where I discovered sports. And uh, the thing, it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, as much as I, I look back now and I realize that all of us were poor, there are always levels, right? And I, and I lived, even in the poor area of, of town, I lived in one of the poorest areas of that poor area. And so when I was on a sports field or playing soccer, I found a sense of worth, right? And And what, you know, whatever the worth of my pocket was at the time didn't matter. It was what I had in my heart. And so, and, you know, what you could bring out onto the field. And so I, you know, I really gravitated to sports and, and found a, a, a kind of purpose there. All right. We're going to dig into that as well, but I want to talk about grandma first. Your grandma <laughs> used to tell you stories, right? She had yeah. all these great stories of soldiers who could do the impossible. And when they, when they did the impossible, they didn't even get hurt. They were like, they were magic sh- soldiers, right? Super and that, that, in, that story, those stories inspired you to become an officer in the Jamaican army. What was it about grandma's stories that lit that fire in you? Yeah, you're right. So um, as I understand it, I went to live with my grandmother in the country, rural uh, Jamaica, really rural Jamaica, when I was about seven months old. And, you know, by my calculation, I was with her until maybe five. And uh, and during those times, there were really happy times. Um, uh, and she told me these stories. And the truth is that I can't really remember the details, per se, of those stories. Uh, you know, I definitely remember her telling me about soldiers and how they, they could perform these amazing feats and not get hurt. And it just kind of lit up my five-year-old imagination. Didn't know if I could do it, but I wanted to do it. 
And that inspired me to want to join the army. But more importantly, though, Rob, is that you know, her stories inspired me to want to do things that everybody has thought was incredibly difficult, if not impossible. And so as I, you know, I'm growing up in Waterhouse, um, really at the very bottom of the, 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 the social ladder and the totem pole, um, this idea of, uh, yeah, I could become a soldier, but this idea of becoming an army officer, man, was like, you know, a light, were a light year away. But then, uh, or should I say, but because of the stories that my grandmother told me, and it had created this fire in me to want to try to do things that seemed virtually impossible, it just seemed like the natural thing to do, to do the more difficult thing, to try to become an army officer. And it, it worked out, I would say. Well, she set you off in the right direction for sure. So now we've got this mix of the stories in the background that lit this fire for you, your desire to play, and you happen to have been really, really good at sport. You were a uh, a track and field guy. You love soccer. They called you Pele. I'm old enough to remember watching Pele on TV. And you had dreams of representing Jamaica in the Olympics. And then Something really interesting happened one day. It's all these, you know, in life we have these pivotal moments, right? You had this pivotal moment. Can you walk us through the story of the two Americans who were working at the U.S. Embassy and saw something that triggered triggered what they, they they were confused. They didn't understand what they were watching, and it it represented bobsledding for them, but it wasn't bobsledding. But that moment changed the trajectory of your life. Tell me that story. Yeah, it's uh, uh thank you for asking that. It's kind of an interesting story. Uh, so let me start with me first. Um, as I said, you know, I had this dream of competing in the Olympic Games. You know, my challenge is I grew up in Jamaica where everybody sprints fast, except me. I'm a middle distance runner, man, because I, I want to win something, Rob, <laughs> and I couldn't win anything short. <laughs> so I started running 800 meters and started dreaming of competing in the Olympic Games. The, the overarching dream that I have, though, was to become an army officer. So now, if you fast forward, it's 1987. I'm 21 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, so what are you going to do with your, with your life? I mean, you have accomplished this thing. You're an army officer. Is this it? And then I kind of remembered, oh, yeah, I want to compete in the Olympics, which were coming up in the following year in Seoul, Korea. And so I started running five miles every morning, you know, hoping to get fit enough to qualify for the Olympics because th- that's all I knew. I mean, I know now that there was a whole lot more to the kind of training and preparation that you needed to do, but I didn't know that at the time. And I think that's a wonderful thing about having dreams, Rob. You you don't have to know, man. You just have to have it and then start. Um, so around about that time, these two Americans, George Fitch and William Maloney, who, as I said, lived in Jamaica, had business and family connections. There, George was with the U.S. State Department, I think. And so their stories that they were in a local bar in Kingston you know, having a drink or two, you know, I don't know if they were smoking I, as well. You know, I'm not, you know, I, I'm just wondering. <laughs> and, um, and and this is, I, this is Jamaica. So we're not talking about cigarettes at that time. Perhaps not, but perhaps knows? not, perhaps <laughs> not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so they, they saw, if you've seen cool runnings, you'll see 
this cart that Sanka Coffee was racing down uh, this winding mountain road. They saw that, Pushkar Derby, we call it. Um, and it's not something, quite frankly, that's widely done across the island. It's, I've never done it myself. Um, these carts, we use them to transport wares in the marketplace. And every year, they'll kind of spruce them up and they'll have this special race, Pushkar Derby. Two crazy guys going down the side of a mountain in a cart. Kind of like bobsledding, except for the ice. And then these two American guys, they realize that a big part of a bobsled race is a start. You need sprinters. We have lots of sprinters. So they tried to get the guys on a summer team to do it, and they weren't interested. So they came to the Army looking for athletes. Um, so I'm in the Army. I hear about this bobsled idea, and I'm thinking, man, this has to be the most absurd, ridiculous idea ever conceived by man. And I remember saying to my friends, nobody could ever get me to go on one of those things. So this is where, you know, you know there's a, this confluence of circumstances, serendipity. I go, I'm, I'm running my five miles in the morning. I go run a cross-country race. Not many people in the army at the time knew I was an athlete. You know, I, I had broken my ankle when I was doing my officer training in England. So I came back kind of limping. And so I'm not the picture of this, the fittest guy in the world, right? So I run this cross-country race anyway, and I finished 14th out of 40. And they're like, oh my God, he's fit. So my colonel, um, kind of on a whim, uh, told me to go to the team trials. And it was really because he had a bunch of enlisted men going to the team trials and he figured he'd send his young, fit army uh, officer as well because there's a philosophy in the army that says officers must always participate. He wasn't expecting me to make the team. But the minute he told me to go to the team trials and I knew I was going to the team trials because it's not like I had a choice, in that moment, I just knew. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew I had to make the team. So here we are. All right. So now here we are. So now in this is, uh, I believe, the year 1988, you are preparing for the Winter Olympics in Calgary. But to my knowledge, you have not been outside of Jamaica at that point. Is that right? No. So I, so I, I first left Jamaica in 85 to go to England, uh, where I did my officer training at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. Okay. Um, that was my first time out of Jamaica. Okay, but that's that's still not snow. That's still not you know you know not, uh, not, Austria, not, right? <laughs> All right. So now you're preparing for it, mostly on the army base in Kingston. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now you're pushing around this makeshift sled for three hours every afternoon, and you didn't have many opportunities to train in cold, snowy places like Austria. What was going through your minds when you actually took the training that you were doing in Kingston to where you would actually be doing this kind of events in snow? Like you had to figure out, like, how did you get used to a whole new environment? Well, you know, to be honest, the weather itself wasn't much of an issue. And I, I promise you, man, if you spend, you know, a year in England training in the army and you're sleeping outside in the cold, even you get used to it. It's not snowing. Yeah, come on. Bob setting is a piece of cake. Okay. Um, well, for me, you know, winter, um, even now, it's really about just bundling up. 
the biggest issue I have with the winter when it gets cold are my fingertips. Um, so the bigger problem was actually going down a bobsled run. And so our first run was um, October 87. So that's, so the team got selected in 87 September and we were pushing this makeshift sled on wheels in Kingston uh, three hours every afternoon during the week, six hours in a Saturday morning, um, and all the way mid-September to mid-October. And so we go off to Calgary, man, and if, if you've been, if you've ever seen a bobsled track, um, and, and then you're thinking about going down the track, and you're thinking about how fast these sleds go, it's intimidating. And I bet. And I, and that's just like putting it mildly. Now, because I joke around a lot, Rob, people, when I tell people I'm scared of speed and height, they think I'm joking. No, I'm not. I'm like, I, and so I'm, I'm getting in a sled because I was a brake man, um, being a guy who had never driven a sled before. And, and I just remember resigning myself to this. I'm like, you know what? If I die, I die, but I'm going. And You're so, going to do it. You're going to yeah, do it. I'm going, man. I'm going. And so I went. We did three runs that night from the halfway point. And, and I just remember the third, on the third run, I was still scared to death, but I was hooked. Like, this was my sport. Now, it, are your parents or, or your friends, are they saying to you, well, what's going on with you? You smoking ganja? Like, are you out of your minds? Like, what are you doing? There's yeah. no cultural support in your immediate surroundings to say, this is the thing you should be doing. In fact, everything in your surroundings is probably pointing to, you should not be doing this. This is crazy. Yes, yeah, a, a good question. So at the time, my, you know, my circle of friends were really the people in the army. That was my life, right? Um, all the, the guys I went to high school with, I never see them. Because I'm, I'm tucked away in the army doing army stuff. And quite frankly, again, we talk about some of the rough neighbors in Kingston. The times when I was out on the streets, I was hoping I'd never run into any of my friends because it would not work out well for them. You know, that kind of thing. So the, the friends that, that, that I was in touch with, I knew I was going to go bobsledding, were all army people and they you know, had an idea of what was going on. My parents at the time lived here in the U.S. And I remember um, visiting uh, my parents in Jersey and I had a, 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 a back in the VHS days, um, of a news story that they had done on us and, you know, stuck it in the, in the VCR. And my, my parents are watching it and my dad watched it in silence. And then <laughs> he paused and he goes, but Dev, this thing is really dangerous. I go, yeah, that's why we wear a helmet, you know? <laughs> so um, most people in Jamaica, man, didn't have a clue about what bobsledding is. And I, I mean, now more people do, but at the time we were just kind of off into the wilderness doing our thing. Well, I will tell you, there's not a person who I have mentioned to uh, in my circle as I was doing research for this interview 
that doesn't know this story. This is a world famous story. I mean, every, like more people, I knew of it, but I hadn't, I still haven't seen the movie. I'm going to tonight. Um, and we're going to get to talking about that in a moment, but this was a big deal in, uh, in pop culture at that time. So, um, spoiler alert, the Jamaican team debut was disappointing. The team wound up crashing, not finishing the events, even though the world knew that you were the underdog and knew that it was a valiant effort that you guys even did this. What did that burden of losing feel like to you at that time? Oh, man. Um, awful, really. Um, you know, so I, I remember the crash so well. I remember the moment we went over and people who have seen the crash um, just saw this really violent uh, overturn of the sled and they asked me all the time, were you scared? Did you think you're going to die? I, 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 you know, I was, my ego was hurt, uh, bruised badly. Um, and, and I was ashamed in this, uh, you know, I was like, man, we crashed in front of the entire world. We just failed in front of the entire world. We just gave credence to all the people who felt we had no business being in the Olympic Games. And we just failed an entire country. That was a hard burden uh, to bear. And I remember as I'm walking down the breaking stretch, trying to get, get off the, the track, you know, I'm trying to exit stage left. To my surprise, Rob, people started to cheer. And, and I remember one, I was leading the group and one guy reached over the barriers and shook my hand and shook it. And then I had to shake every other hand um, after that. And I remember, you know, you've been to Jamaica, so you'll probably hear people tell you soon come. I was uh, supposed to do an interview, I believe it was with ABC. And, and I gave them a soon come. And by the way, if a Jamaican tells you soon come, it could mean five minutes, it could mean five years. I have not been yet. I have not done that interview yet. Because I, I, you know, I don't know, what do you go and say to the world in the moment or right after the moment you're right. free in front of right. the entire world? Right. You know, um, I, I didn't know what to say, so I, I, I never went. But what's so amazing about our story um, and you, you, you say it's really a pop culture uh, kind of moment and story, is the fact that people are able to relate to us. I mean, do they appreciate the Germans and the Swiss and the Americans and all the other top teams? Absolutely, they do. But here's the thing. What they're seeing us is, are these four guys who have really no business being in the Winter Olympics, you know, getting there against all odds, you know, dreaming this possible dream. And, and I think we remind them of themselves and those quote-unquote impossible dreams that they have themselves, that other people may say, you know, it's a, it's, it's a waste of time, it's useless, uh, you could never do that. Maybe they themselves are saying it to them. And I think we gave them permission to go off and go pursue those dreams. And so, you know, they're able to relate to us. But you know what's fascinating to me? What's fascinating to me is that this happens, and in a moment of this happening, that was their reaction. Their reaction was to reach their hand out because there was some part of them 
that they saw in you. There was like a piece of you. They knew that you were doing the freaking impossible, that you were doing something that was so, you were a fish out of water. You were doing something that is just nuts to do that it didn't even matter whether or not you won, what mattered that you did it. And that was their initial reaction. It wasn't even like upon cool reflection in a few years, you know, people went, oh, that was a great job, you know, and it, it, like, now that I think about it, that was, that, that was their reaction. Okay, so in, you can't make this up. In, in 1993, Hollywood comes calling and decides to make a movie called Cool Runnings, uh, loosely based on this story. And I'm sure they took a lot of Hollywood license as they do. Can you take me back to that moment that you either got the call or you heard or you found out, hey, they're going to make a movie about this. <laughs> tell me that story and tell me what was going through your minds. Yeah. So so actually, they, the movie itself took about five years uh, to finally get made. George Fitch, uh, one of the American guys who came up with the idea to start the team, I'm not sure how long after the Olympics in Calgary, he started shopping the idea around. And then we ended up making several trips to New York, speaking to the the writers, and they took copious notes. Um, and, and I imagined, having seen the movie, that after we left the room, they kind of threw it away and go, oh, give me a notepad, let's write something sensible or entertaining. Yeah. Um, so... Every six months or so, you'd get a, a you know a notice. Hey, they're filming. Oh, they're not filming. They're filming. They're not filming. And then my friends would be asking, so when are they filming the movie? I'm like, I don't even know, man. Don't care. Because um, I honestly got frustrated with it. And then, yeah, early 93, January, February, I got a call and they, they say, hey, they're filming in Calgary. Would you like to go? I'm like, Absolutely. Um, so that was, it's really cool. I mean, it's, it's really cool to be on a Hollywood uh, movie set. It's really flattering to be on a movie set watching them film a movie about an important part of your life. And it's, uh, we, we, we just spoke about my beginnings, right? So it's a, <laughs> you know, quite a journeyman from Waterhouse uh, to a, a Hollywood movie set in Calgary. So how do you explain this in, in sort of like, I'm not sure really how to ask this question, but from a, we'll call it for lack of a better word, from a spiritual perspective, it's like you didn't, you didn't have a plan. You didn't say, hey, I'm going to be on the Jamaican bobsled team and they're going to make a movie. Like this was you in a raft floating down a river, and it just sort of took you. How do you reconcile that in your mind? How do you account for that? And, and maybe, maybe what did it teach you that you're, you have five children now? Like, what are you teaching them through this lesson? It's, uh, you draw a really interesting analogy there, you know, the raft going down the river, because in my book, uh, you know, keep on pushing hot lessons from cool ones. I talk about, I actually use that analogy about, you know, you know, going after your goals and learning how to go with the flow, right? Because it, as you're heading down a river, we think about an actual river, there are all these rocks and, you know, outcroppings. And if you kind of allow yourself to go with the flow, knowing that you want to head downstream, you will somehow, you know, for want of a better term, magically navigate around those obstacles. And I think 
but there's some effort that it has to be made. Like you have to choose to go into the river first of all. So I would say I'd, I'd equate that to me choosing to go pursue goals, right? It's me choosing uh, to stay in school and, and make sure that I got my education so that I could go pursue this goal of becoming an army officer. It's me choosing rather than to go party or whatnot, running and, and honing and developing my athletic skills. It's me doing this self-evaluation at 21, going, dude, what are you going to do with your life, man? Come on. And then, oh, yeah, the Olympics. And then going out there and doing some work so that, you know, all of this other stuff is happening off, uh, you know, kind of off to the side. Somebody coming up with the idea to start a bobsled team. And then me going to the team trials. Because, look, the colonel told me to go to the team trials. I could have gone and just gone through the motions. But I decided that I wanted to go. I was going to go. And I was going to do everything in my power to make the team. So all of us, uh, you know, have a role to play in the serendipity that takes place in our lives. There are some things that you have no control over, but the pieces that you have control over, you have to do it because it, you know, invariably leads to something so much better than you could have dreamt of. I got it. I got it. So even though you did not know how this was going to unfold, what you did know was the pieces that you did know. And you Mm -hmm. stepped into the things that you did know and then the next step was revealed and the next thing happens because you don't know when you're in a fog what the end of the mile of the road looks like. You can only see 10 feet in front of you, but you can take the action on the 10 feet in front of you. Yeah, and if you go, my God, it's too foggy. I'm not going to move. I'm going to stand here until the fog clears. You know, who knows what opportunities you missed up ahead just because they didn't have the faith and the courage to take you know, action on that first 10 feet that you can see. Love that. Okay. So you decided to write, you referenced um, one of your books. I think you've written a couple and one of the books um, is called Yes, I Can. And yes. that is the uh, the story of the Jamaican bobsledding team, but it is a children's book. Why did you choose to write a children's book? Uh, you know, so uh, in, in the early days of my speaking, uh, I I would make it a point every time I went to a new city, to try and visit kids in the hospital or kids in schools and the poor side of town. Um, And as I'm spending time with these kids, one of the things I noticed was um, how low their self-confidence was. And look, maybe at that age, I was just, uh, you know, know, I suffered from as much uh, lack of self-confidence as they did. You know, you know, we have these, really inflated opinions of ourselves. Um, But I was really struck by that. And so I wanted to find a way, find a story that I could tell them, that could encourage them and a cool way to do it. And so I thought of our story, the story of the Jamaica Bobsled team. And then so the question is like, how do I tell that story? And um, right about that time, this other Jamaican author had written a, a children's book and it was written to verse about this, this Rastafarian kid who was being discriminated against and his dad like kind of encouraged him and he built up the courage. And I go, aha, that's what I'll do. And so I ended up writing that book. Okay, so 
Now, you yourself have five children. Why do you have five children? What are you are you on a death wish? Five <laughs> kids? Are you crazy? I have two. I'm I'm like, I can't, I, I don't know if I'm coming or going. How do you do it with five? Dude, you know, they say make hay while the sun shine into a sun. <laughs> <laughs> All um, right. You, you know, you know, I know on a serious note, I I have five kids and um you know, people ask me all the time. So, what's what's uh, what what achievement are you most proud of? And I'll I'll always say, man, the thing I love being called the most is daddy. Oh, uh, that's wonderful. Love love being a dad and you know being responsible um, for guiding these. Uh, well, they're not, a couple are younger. You know, I'm a granddad now, so you know I'm getting up there, man. Uh, my dad, my dad used to say to me, he used to kid around with me and he'd whisper, you know why me and your mother will never get divorced? And I said, why? He said, because none of us want the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to remember that one. That's funny. <laughs> All right. I want to talk a little bit about fulfillment. The show is uh, called Work Hard, Play Hard. We talked a lot about work. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the other side of it, which is um, maybe some things that you do at this stage of your life and with your experience to sort of like, you know, step into the world of fulfillment. So for you right now at this stage of your life, you know, you just mentioned it, you're, you're a granddad now. What does fulfillment look, look like for you now? Hmm. What does fulfillment feels like for me now um, is perhaps a, a that, more accurate question. Uh, and it's a, about um, having a sense of peace, knowing that, you know what, man, I've, um, well, the journey is not done for me. Quite frankly, I don't even know what retirement looks like, but it's it's about enjoying, really enjoying what it is that you do. I, I all the time say I don't work. Um it doesn't mean that I don't make a lot of effort, but it doesn't feel like work. And I enjoy the effort. I enjoy the things that I do. I enjoy the idea that um, that I can, outside of just trying to, um, uh, you know, pursue my vocation, I can spend time giving back. Right. So I have my my foundation uh, in. Most of the work is done in Jamaica now. The Key Palm Pushing Foundation. We're doing work at my old elementary school. Um, so it's about finding um, a, a, a way to to play a world a, a role in the world that's outside of myself. You know, so giving back in uh, in a specific way to uh, a, a charity or a foundation that I've created, but also just giving back to others. Whether it's you know when I'm on stage. Um, encouraging and challenging people. I feel like I'm on purpose. That, that, that to me is fulfillment. I love that. What do people often get wrong about you and or your work? Because you have, you have a story that is inextricably tied to you. So when they think of you there, there's a story there, but I would assume that people get a component of you wrong because they tie you probably exclusively to that story. Um, maybe speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before, but it would be the idea and maybe, well, a, a couple of things. One, I'm Jamaican, right? And we're easygoing and and cool or we come off that way as easygoing and laid back is, is perhaps a more accurate word. 
And then they see Cool Runnings as a comedy, right? And it just kind of fits into this stereotypical view of Jamaicans. And so, you know, when they see me, when they hear of me, when they want me to come speak to their to their group, yes, of course, I'm easy going and I'm, you know, I pretend that I'm funny. Uh, it, it's, but, so they don't, they sometimes don't take the business side of thing, this thing seriously, right? Ah, uh, yeah. I'm a business girl, our dude, you know, and yeah, I am happy to come and speak and I'm happy to even come and uh, in, in, in some instances, you know, I'm always willing to give, but don't mistake that this is a business as well. And, uh, you know, then the same way you'd pay a speaker with a similar experience or, or uh, another speaker, this fee, don't take the fact that I'm Jamaican and they made a movie cool runnings about me as, you know, I'm a joker. Cause that's I, interesting. I, I so they're, 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 they're perhaps putting you into the box of entertainer and not into the uh, box of uh, a business uh, uh, speaker. That's interesting. I can see how yeah. that happens and I can see how that could be frustrating yeah, for sure. It's like, you know, it, it takes work to come yeah. and do what I do. And I don't just, cause I really actually on a serious note, put so much effort into preparing and I, I don't just get on stage and deliver a can of speech. I want to know about the group. I want to know about the challenges that they're facing. I want to understand the theme and the purpose of the meeting and then figure out which story, how do I draw the analogies between my experiences and the challenges that they're feeling or mm. experiencing, right? That, that, that's worth something. I love that. Another weird question. What is an unusual or absurd thing that you love? It has nothing to do with food. I'm not adventurous when it comes down to food. Um, so it would have to be, <laughs> like I say all the time, I'd rather jump off a building than eat something that I've never eaten before. So it probably would be risk. Is that absurd? Interesting. That's absurd. Yeah. Nobody likes risk. Nobody wants to do that. That's an interesting, yeah, interesting answer. Yeah. Look, it's ridiculous. I mean, if I like, if you, if you go, Hey, here's a snail, here's a worm, here's a piece of a snake, eat this or jump off this building. I'm like, all right, where's the stairs? <laughs> That's awesome. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Where's that place you've been for 16 years, 16 times when it's Jamaica? Um, <laughs> Spanish town. It, it's Jamaica because it's so familiar, man. It's home. It's like, I, look, I'm having a great time living in the U.S. I love traveling around the world. But it's like there's a there's a part of me that that comes alive when I'm in Jamaica that I did not know was sleeping when, or is sleeping when I'm out of Jamaica. Do you go back often? Yeah, when they pay me. When they no, pay you to come so, back. So I, so I actually go back a few times a year to speak to North American companies primarily. And then I go back um, to check on my foundation um, as well. Um, so you go back to speak to North American companies in Jamaica? Yes, sir. I do. How does that I, happen? I don't understand the math there. Well, they have because, a, like a division there or something? No, no, no. Jamaica is a, no, no. So Jamaica is a destination and companies when they're having their incentive trips, some of them go to Jamaica and they're looking for a speaker. Like, oh yeah, there's that Jamaican bobster guy. Let's have him. And so I'll, I'll, I'll gladly oblige 
to go. You don't have to twist my arm too much. But oh, in- that is such a cool idea. Yeah, in- oh, man. <laughs> okay. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, and it could be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind substantially where you shifted your position and you used to think like, I used to think this way about this, but recently as I'm getting older, I don't, I don't feel that way about this anymore. I've changed my mind about this. Is there anything that comes to mind there? You know, the thing that comes to mind, especially because we're talking about Jamaica and um, it's controversial, I'm probably going to get in trouble, but that's okay, um, is the whole gay issue. Um, because quite frankly, we, we as a people are homophobic. I, I think any... We are. Any, well, I'm talking about we Jamaicans, you know. Oh, any, you mean Jamaica, but I think, the wor- I think many parts of the world still are. Yeah, uh, you know, and so if you're being objective, you would agree with that. And, you know, so over the years, I don't think it's just because I live here. It's just uh, an evolution. Like, leave the people alone. Let them live their lives, man. What, what, how is it your business? It's they love my, each other. My attitude. Yeah, it's like, that's Who none cares? of my business. You know, they're living their life. I'm living mine. Cool. We're happy. Cool. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. We need more uh, thinking like that. All right. So I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions as we wrap up here. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Determination. I mean, I'm, I'm being biased here because that's how I, that's what I see my superpower to be as well. I'm a determined, persistent son of a son of a, you know what? Okay, cool. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Horrible, horrible at that. Um, No, no collection. No, no, no real collection. I've I've tried, I've failed to collect Olympic pins and can't find them. (laughs) What is one thing now that you want to get better at? (laughs) I was about to say time management. I was about to say typing. I was about to say I want I need to brush up on my French skills. Well, it's listen, you listen. You did the you did the Jamaican bobsledding movie. I, I, but, need to but, do, I need to brush up on my social media skills. You, you're, you're the Jamaican bobsled guy, but please don't be the Jamaican time management planner because I don't think that that one's going to work. <laughs> I know. I just. I'm t- but well, I just told you about the soon come thing, right? You know, it's just <laughs> like <laughs> it's, that's why I need to be better because it's so. Uh, you know, it goes so against the grain of what it's I in do. Your, it's right? in your DNA. It's island time, right? Oh, um, what is your guilty pleasure? Oh, chocolate. Chocolate? Can- chocolate candy. Not chocolate ice cream. Not oh. chocolate cake. No, don't like that. Chocolate candy. Dude. Like Hershey's? Uh, all of the above. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> what is on your nightstand? The, the night lamp, um, the book that I'm reading at the moment, and a thing of water. And, and uh, what's the book? I'm I'm rereading. I need to really get through this now. I'm rereading Seven Habits of of Highly Effective People. Yeah, that's uh, that's Covey. He did a time management company. Yeah, it's uh, actually I have a book there about the eighth habit that I need. To, I haven't read yet. You got to you got to do that one. I'm before the time. <laughs> All right, two uh, two last questions as we wrap. The first one is, if you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, so we're pulling all the bobsledding stuff out, nothing that you speak about, and it could be on 
any other topic that you have a passion for, what would it be? Hmm. I, I can I have one fatherhood. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay. Last question is we're going to switch things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? When, when's your next trip to Jamaica? That's a really good question. I think when I can get on an airplane and go anywhere would be a good answer. I I would say I think next year we're going to do Half Moon Bay, which I think is in Montego, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Montego Bay. But yeah, but on a serious note, so that was my frivolous question. My, yeah, okay. my yeah. frivolous question would be, talk to me a little bit about your interest in spirituality. Well, as I'm getting older, I'm 54 now, I'm starting to realize that, well, let me give you some context. I was a guy that would have a goal for something and I would wrestle that goal into the ground. Whether I, I would I would look for the exact steps for what I needed to do to wrestle that goal into the grounds. And what I am now realizing over the course of the last couple of years is that the universe, God, spirit, source, has a plan when I put that intention out into the universe and the unfolding of the how that goal is accomplished is sort of none of my business and it will unfold in the way it needs to unfold. And so my interest in spirituality is learning how to stay in a vibration that will allow that to happen and not be so arrogant that I'm going to tell the universe how it's going to happen. And that's a, that's a, um, I'm a bit of a control freak by nature. And that's difficult for my personality because I want to see it exactly how to do it. Give me the step by step by step, but that isn't the way it works. That's, that's the best answer I can give for that. Yeah, no, I, I relate. I, I completely relate as a reformed, I, I know not, I wouldn't say total reformed control freak as well. Um, you have goals and you, why are you sitting around waiting? We'll go get them. And so it's uh, me trying to find that balance as well between, you know, as you say, wrestling the goal down to the ground and taking that ride down the river, just kind of going with the flow that the two don't, you know, and that's the thing. People think well, I'm Jamaican, I'm cool and easy going. Yeah, but we're intense. You can't win if you're not intense. Or that's for, just who I come from. For sure, for sure. And and having that, staying in a, here's another one. If I, like I live in Southern California now, right? And I don't have a view from my home of the ocean, right? Poor me. What I want is I want to be able to wake up in the morning, sit outside on my deck and look out at the ocean. What I would have done pre-spirituality was been pissy about it and not being grateful. In other words, yes, I'm living in Southern California and yes, I have the dream of living in a beach community, which I've always wanted to live in, but I can't see the ocean and being pissed about that. Now I have gratitude and love for what I do have and 
visions for what else I would love to add to it. But that's not the way I used to operate. So now I'm stepping into the gratitude of, of everything I have and not being pissed about what I don't have and like almost, you know, shaming or condemning my current circumstances. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's a great shift because uh, all of us, I think, or too many of us tend to focus so much on all the things that we don't have. And we completely ignore, neglect all the goodness that we have in our lives. And, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, spirit, spirituality, you know, when you focus on the good, the good gets better. So, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, on that note, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people listening? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, thank you for having me on. And I want to encourage, you know, all your listeners to continue to, you know, tune in uh, to you because, man, you're putting in a lot of effort to put out really good content that is going to benefit them. And I encourage them to come check me out as well, the Jamaican Bobster guy. Instagram, Twitter, I'm at, at Keep on Pushing 88. I'm on Facebook. I'm the one, I'm the Devon Harrison, the Bobster uniform. Can't miss me. All right. And we're going to link up to all of your, uh, all of your URLs in the show notes so everybody can get you nice and easy. Devin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.